Hey guys, uh, thanks for coming back this week and checking out what normally would be episode 96 of the Life in General podcast. Unfortunately, we had, I had a, a, I shouldn't say we because it wasn't Ian's fault, it was definitely my fault. I, uh, I screwed up and somehow deleted what, what was actually a really great conversation, uh, which is really probably the worst part about it. We, we've done kind of some, some, I wouldn't say dud episodes, but after we've got done recording them, we've kind of gone back and said, ah, you know, it could have been a better, better conversation. This was a fantastic conversation. We talked about why we talked about why we think adults have to consume alcohol in social settings. It, it was really, it was really interesting conversation. We go into lots of different uh, avenues with the conversation. Um, but, and that's why it's probably really unfortunate that the, that the conversation got deleted. So hopefully uh, later down the road we'll go back and and kind of touch on the on the subject again and kind of go over it again, um, but uh, so that that was one of the kind of main reasons why why I decided to break up episode ninety five into two parts because it was such a long episode is almost two hours long, so we took the last oh, I think it been about an hour and ten minutes of the Jethro Tall conversation we kind of broke that up and made that its own its own uh, episode. And we, we kind of start off with, with going into Aqualong and the controversy around the artwork around um, the, the artwork that was made for the album cover. And we kind of we, we go from there and, and we also discuss uh, some some hard, uh, hard to find pressings of earlier Jethro Tull albums. And we also talk about some things we'd love to see released on vinyl from their catalog and stuff that we'll probably never see, uh, get released. So that's, that's kind of the, the interesting part of it. If you're a Jethro Tall fan, you'll love this episode. Uh, drop us a line, hit us up on email on, on Twitter or Facebook and, and let us know what you think of the show. Uh, so thanks for checking it out. And here's the episode. Ian is named after the lead singer. If you, yeah, if you didn't know that. So it's kind of like been ingrained in him to be a Jethro Tull fan. Was your mom, was your mom a Jethro Tull no, fan? No, no, not really. I'm surprised she let she let. I don't you, know. I don't. I don't know how that all worked out, but because um, I was a baby, but um, they probably figured that I mean, out before, she you, before of, you were a baby. Yeah, maybe. Um, but anyway, I mean, she likes some of the stuff, but you know. Did she go to a lot of shows or she? I think at least you, one. I know because your sure. dad went to a lot of. Yeah. I, I know she went to seventy six with him. Yeah, at, uh, the Silver Dome. Okay, but I don't know if she, I don't think she went to any other ones. I could be wrong. So my dad's seen him seventy six. That would have been to old rock and roll. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. Duh. Right. Uh, my dad's seen him twenty times in, in concert. I've seen him thirteen. I've seen him twice. twice. Yeah, you yeah. saw him in '95 and '97. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. I mean, to say I'm a fan, but you weren't early on. Sorry, I'm gonna no, make, I no, I'm I fought bunch, it. Yeah. I gotta get some more candy corn now. So I'm you know, when you're a kid, you don't. I mean, especially a kid in the '80s, you think of that kind of old music, and there was always this disconnect between what your parents listened to, and what your kid, you know, what the kids listen to. And I mean, t- yeah. I'm talking even when I was little, little, but I was into music pretty much. Very early on, yeah, you know, as was I. So it was. It, my, I fought it. My dad would make me mix tapes of Jethro Tull stuff, and I'd be like, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> um, and then Do you remember when, what the first one he, he gave you was? God, I had no idea. 
No idea. It could have been probably Aqualung, maybe. Probably. I don't know. Was he a big Aqualung? No, Aqualung I, actually, it wasn't It wasn't Aqualung. It was Under Wraps. Really? Yeah. Which really should have been a, an Ian Anderson solo album, but. Not Under Wraps. <laughs> yeah. No, no, because there's one song for sure on there that Ian Anderson didn't even write musically. He wrote the lyrics, too, but he didn't write the music, too. Um, and then it was really, they, they, Martin Barr says that, that Martin Barr is the guitar player for Jethro Tull, um, says that was one of the more, um, collaborative albums. Really? Yeah. Um, didn't really, and sound, I think didn't it's, really I, sound like it. I, I think, think it's very underrated, um, as an album. Personally. I don't like it. That's I know one you, of the, I know you don't like it. That, I, I think it's underrated considerably. That was their entry into like the period of. Well, it was their it was their electronic phase. It was definitely eighties. It was very very fucking eighties. They used synthesized drums at a time when synthesized drums weren't quite there yet. Um, Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that. A lot of keyboards and just very eighties sounding. Very it is eighties synth sounding. For what it's worth, though, I think if you take those exact same songs and play them with real instruments, I think you would have a completely different appreciation for that album. Oh, I'm sure. I'm because sure. Because there's a lot of musical stuff going on there, a lot of lyrical stuff going on there that really does work. Mm-hmm. And I think for some people who can't get past that, if those songs were played with real instruments, I think you could enjoy that. It was. Uh, it, sho- it showed Ian Anderson's love affair for spy novels? Yeah, to a degree. Um, there's a lot of spy th- spy-centric um, songs and themes in there. Yeah. Um, specifically, his when you say spy novels, his it really goes to John Le Carre, or John Le Carre, however you want to pronounce it. Yeah, something like that. Uh, I believe it's pronounced Le Carre, but anyway, he uh, wrote Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. He wrote yep. a bunch of spy novels, but it was very yeah a lot of like Heat is about that, and later that same evening, some of the songs on there are very very spy centric and kind of connected to those old Le Carre spy novels. Yeah. yeah. So that was probably the first mixtape I got or, you know, but it wasn't, I, I'm aside from like maybe like night 87 when, when the CDs started coming to the market, my dad was pretty much over records. He didn't want to buy vinyl anymore. He was strictly CDs. And in his defense, um, when Jethro Tull started releasing their stuff on CD, like new, like under wraps specifically and crest of a knave, which was the album that came out in 87. Yeah. Because of the limitations of space on the vinyl, there are songs that are on the CD that are not on the vinyl. Mm-hmm. So with Under Wraps, there's four songs that are not on the vinyl but are on the CD. And then with um, Crest of a Name, there's two. Did they release those on, on additional 7-inch? or? Yes, most of them. Um, most of them, well, the Under Wraps, they released three out of the four. Because I know they did that with uh, Catfish Rising also, right? Yes. Well, with Catfish Rising, it was... Um, it came together though. It was yes. like it was weird, like a like a twelve inch single, but it yeah it was like it was like like oh, a bonus disc almost. It was a well, oh, it was. It was oh, I thought it was on like a, a seven inch or a ten inch. It, no, it's not. A, it's not a twelve inch. Oh, is it? Okay. But it's a forty five, and it's it was like a bonus disc that gotcha. came with the record. Gotcha. Okay. Um. So, with th- at that point, so there's two songs. My dad bought the vinyl of Crest of an Ave the same day he bought the CD. I don't know why he bought the vinyl, but I got it right away. Yeah. And there's three songs in there that I liked as that at that age. Like, you know, the first three songs on the album, actually. Yeah. I really enjoyed. Uh, Steel Monkey, Farm on the Freeway, Jumpstart. And actually, to four, track four, she said she was a dancer. But even at that age, I really kind of dug those songs. 
But that was the extent of it. I didn't really go into any beyond that with yeah. Tull until I was like 13. It was just a boring summer day, you know, nothing to do. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, fuck, I was, you know, what What can I do? So I just grabbed a tape that I had, one of those mixed tapes. Popped it in. Popped it in. And I'm like, eh, it's not bad. So then I started looking for more. And here I am now 27 years later, 28 years later, a bigger fan than my dad was. You think so? Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's still a huge fan, but I took it kind of to the next level. Maybe. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. So, um, But yeah, a lot of those, um, uh, specifically those two albums, though, they, the seven inches did, or the, the singles they released did have extra. You just buy them separately. Yeah. You got it. You have bought them, haven't you? Uh, I have not gotten the one from 87 yet. Because the, the, the one song that's not on there, is, it's not a great song. But no. the other one is one of my favorite tall songs. It's Dogs of Midwinter. Uh-huh. So I definitely want to get that one, but I haven't gotten it yet. But I got the Under Wraps one just a couple months ago. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I know, like, some of the earlier stuff, especially, like, the some of the stuff from This Was, which was their first album, mm-hmm. is actually pretty hard to find and has actually become pretty collectible. There's a... Um, like the singles, you mean? Or are you talking about the Jethro Toe? No, 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 no. There's a there's a first pressing pink label. It's got the a bullseye on it. It's a mono pressing of this was, which oh, was okay. so that was actually cut hotter than the rest of the pressings. And and we've we've kind of talked about this before with some of the RL pressings mm. of uh, Led Zeppelin too. It, it, you know, so the, some of these hotter pressings. It's so it's got more bass to it. It's got a lot deeper sound, and. If you listen to them, at least with the Led Zeppelin too, if you listen to them on cheaper turntables, the bass will actually make your your record player skip. Right. So this was a, and this is kind of along those same line, same lines. Maybe not as to the level as the RL pressing, mm-hmm. uh, but this was a, hot, a hotter pressing, like I said. So it's it tends to be a lot more money. It's a lot harder to find. Um, there's also a pink label first pressing of Stand Up that. If you can find it in near mint, it's going to be well over 150 bucks. Oh wow! Okay. So it, it, it's harder to find, and, and that's kind of the cooler thing about, uh, and, and and at least from what I've read about them, because obviously I had an early pressing of Stand Up. I'm not really sure when it was. I bought it at a. Well, I have to look I, at. I, I should look at the one I've got. I don't think it's it's not a pink pressing. It's but it's the. Um, reprise label which is the early pressing before it was chrysalis yeah so it was the earliest pressing Mm -hmm. reprise was a warner brothers subsidiary and then when toll went exclusively chrysalis they did re-release everything with the chrysalis stamp on it yeah but the one i have is the reprise i think my aqualung my original aqualung is also a reprise maybe even think it's a brick but i'm not sure but the uh yeah, so some of the early pressings, at least from that that mono pressing of this was, and then that that pink uh, version of Stand Up, highly highly collectible. There's a um, there's a seven inch. It's got a song for Jeffrey on one side, Living in the Past on the other. It's a 1969 Turkey, a Turkish pressing. Okay, that runs that that one seven inch will run you about two hundred bucks. Any it, specific reason why? 
just the quality of it because that's mm. and that's the one thing I've read about a lot of those early Jethro Tull pressings mm-hmm. is those early singles are hard to find. For well, sure. not only that, but even the earlier pressings of the albums, you can listen to one pressing plant compared to another one, mm-hmm. and there'll be a completely different sound to the album, a different tone to it, just the way it was cut. Right. So it, 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 a lot of those earlier records, it really depends on what pressing you have mm-hmm. is going to have a higher quality sound to it. Right, right. So I'm, 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 and like those seven inch, you know, a lot of those things, especially a turkey pressing, pressing it's, it's going to be really hard to find. Right. Um, so I, I kind of like going through some of those stuff. I didn't get too much into it when I was looking up for the show, but some of those earlier pressings, it's mm-hmm. really interesting to see the sound quality of it. There's a couple of really good articles that go in a lot of depth about those earlier tall pressings hmm. if you look for it. But. Well, I will say that as far as just, you know, not the technical side of it, but there's a lot of, um, if you go back, there's a lot of unreleased material, or I should say unreleased, but um, little known songs that weren't on the official albums but were really recorded yeah, during the yeah. sessions that would end up as B-sides on a lot of their singles. Yeah. Um, and of, uh, uh, over and the they're years. really good songs, too. And a lot of them, yeah. Some of them are, you would argue, it's like, why weren't they not on the album? Exactly. Uh, Jacqueline, for example. Which is a really good song. Which is a really good song. I didn't even know this. Was actually demoed in 1977. Really? Yeah. But then it was demoed again in 82 yeah. and then recorded in 80, or 81 and then recorded in 82. The recording that we're more familiar with is there's two versions there that you've two. heard, and it's the 81 and the, and the 82 version. Yeah. But yeah, there's a demo version from 77 as well. Really? Yeah. Have you heard it before? Yeah, it's on the uh, Songs from the Wood box set. Okay. So That's cool. Yeah. So that's what, you know, we're at that point now where, you know, it's collectability and all these like unique deluxe sets are coming out. Tull's doing a really good job with that stuff. They have. Um, not, Steve, Steve Wilson's not a really good his remastering is is top notch. Um, in some cases, especially it's, Aqualung. Yeah, I, Aqualung. I can't, I can't get over how good Aqualung. Absolutely, because Aqualung was always kind of, even though it's their hit album, their their biggest hit album, theoretically. I think Things Worked actually did better sales wise. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, it did. Aqualung it, sold over seven million. Aqualung copies. didn't hit number one though. Thick as a brick did. Well, I'm, I'm talking about overall sales. Okay, so. but anyway. Uh, because I'm sure the it band, was the highest I'm, sure, I'm sure the band probably cares more about album sales than than charting. Yeah, also. maybe, probably. But uh, it um, Aqualung has always had a rough. I don't know. There's something about the original sound of that album that just didn't. It was. It wasn't anywhere near as good as Benefit before it in terms no. of sound quality, and it nope. wasn't as good as Thick as a Brick that came after it. No. There was this about weird, it. and even the outtakes sounded it had, better. It had a kind of a dull sound yeah, to it. Yeah, even the it outtakes, though, thought. sounded better because they recorded at different places. Yeah. Something about where they recorded it and how it was that, that bunch of songs was The recorded. way it was cut. Something. Or edited, yeah. But Steve Wilson came in and really cleaned up everything. Just Really, that's what he did. He cleaned that stuff up so that you could hear the distinction between the drums, the bass. The bass and the flute really benefited from... Steve Wilson's mix because yep. it's there now. Before it was just so kind of hollow in the background. Now the, even the drums, everything's right where it's supposed to be for those songs to really shine. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the vinyl sets, and that's the vinyl side of it. On the other <clears throat> side of it, as a s- side project to all these remasters, they're releasing them in these um, sets. They're like in a book, and it comes with a book in the middle, and the CDs are on the out mm-hmm. part like a hardcover book and there's all this bonus material 
uh, demos, unreleased tracks. Uh, kind of like you were talking about with that with that Coltrane. Kind of mm-hmm. hearing these songs, the process, the process, because you can hear how the song was demoed or an original or an earlier version of a song, and then you know what it sounds like on the on the album. It's like you can kind of see where those some of those musical decisions are being made. And yeah. it's like, oh, well, I like that, or I didn't like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, and again, unreleased material that his that even Ian Anderson didn't know existed. Yeah. If you had asked him ten years ago, he would have said it's all out there. And now they found. Actually, I, I think I've heard in a in an article, oh, not an article, but in a, an interview in the last he, couple of years where he said that it was pretty much all. He out thought there. well, he thought that, but now they're they just found there's uh, two instrumental and two studio album two studio songs that they just found for songs from the Earth Stormwatch uh-huh. that totally forgotten about. There was five for Heavy Horses, one for uh, songs from the Wood. Two for to old rock and roll, two for War Child. Mm-hmm. So I mean that's, I that's mean, a lot. That's, that's a an lot of album's music. worth of music they've yes. already found that they, that he didn't even know existed. Yeah. He's found in they found in boxes and, um, as a as a as a Tull fan, that's the stuff that interests me. I want to you know hear these early things, hear these new versions of these yeah. songs, and see I, how I was, they I always find them really interesting. So, yeah, see how they evolved. So how do you speak, speaking of Aqualong? Uh huh. So where do you fall in the Burton Silverman argument? I don't know what the Burton Silverman argument is. <laughs> well, being a Jethro Tull fan, I figured you would. So Bill, Burton Silverman was the artist that did the paintings. Oh, okay. For Aqualung. Okay. So uh, he was commissioned to do so. Yeah. Yes. So he was paid a flat fee of fifteen hundred dollars. Okay. So Burton, Burton Silverman at the time was a was a he was a young inexperienced artist Mm -hmm. and so according so his son actually just uh wrote a whole article about this about a year ago because his son's uh, not an author but he's a journalist um and the title of the article if you want to look it up it's called my dad painted the iconic cover from jethro tall's aqualung and has haunted him ever since is the title of it okay so and he goes in 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 the pretty great detail about kind of the especially the relationship that his dad had with Terry Ellis. Okay. Because I was going to say, there was the record company who commissioned it. Ian Anderson never want, liked it. No. And I'll kind of go into some of that, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so at least the way that Burton Silverman and his son Robert kind of tell a story is Burton was a young artist at the time, and he's approached by Terry Ellis, who says, hey, we want to hire you to do a series of paintings for an album cover. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I think Burton had only done two, like, commissioned works okay. for two national publications is it all he'd done. So he, looking back on it, in retrospect, he feels that he was taken advantage of by Terry Ellis. Uh, there, was no, there was no signed contract. Right. It was a flat $1,500 fee that was worked on that was agreed to. Uh, but Burton, Burton Silverman says that he didn't understand at the time that that had no rights moving forward mm-hmm. uh, for for any. Which actually back with, then was with, kind of standard for the for the industry, I think. Yes and no. Yeah. Um, it had had this happened six or seven years later, not so much. Right? It would have well the so copyright laws changed in the late seventies. Mm. Um. So yeah, you're you're right. It, it, it 
it wasn't common to have a future use clause in a contract. Right. But, uh, like I said, he feels that he's taken advantage of because it was a verbal contract, nothing was written down. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where Burton Silverman and his family really had no recourse moving forward. Um, like I say, he's relatively inexperienced. I mean, the album's done seven million copies. Right. Yeah. So, so think of the commission work or the or the royalties from that. Mm-hmm. And so, I guess it was. So it's been like this long drawn out battle between the Silverman family and Chrysalis. Because it's not Jethro Tull that he's got an issue. No, with. no. Because I was gonna say Ian Anderson didn't. Even no, like no, it. no, no, no. And so he didn't it, like. It's not that he didn't like the artwork. He just didn't like the concept of it. It's. He said it wasn't what he was looking for. It yeah, wasn't what he and, wanted. What he had envisioned. And, and that's I think but what Terry Ellis had done it. And, and I think that's kind of where the Silverman family feel like they have a little bit bigger of a claim to royalties mm-hmm. is the fact that the Terry Ellis didn't come to the artist with an idea. Okay, this is what we're thinking of. Right. He came to the artist and said, "Okay, here you got a blank slate. Do come up with something." Mm-hmm. And it was he. He flew out to to London. Um, and him and his wife flew out there, and went to a Jethro Tull rehearsal. And he took some pictures of the band performing. Never really used any of it. And then was kind of a, his back was kind of against the wall for the on the for the deadline. And he really had nothing. Mm-hmm. So he said that him and his wife were just they they walked they, they had listened to the songs that they were given and kind of read through the lyrics. So then they went down on the street and they were walking through the streets of, of, of London and came across some homeless people standing there. Which is that, what I, the song I'm that, is that, about. Yeah, and that's where he kind of got the idea. So he he was wearing a like a longer coat and pulled on his he pulled up his, his collar, pulled on on the collar, and that's his wife took the picture, and that's what the album cover is. Mm. And to this day, if you ask Ian Anderson, Ian Anderson's gonna say that that Burton Silverman created that album cover to look like Ian Anderson. It's just because it does kind of look like Ian Anderson. But it, but, I mean, but it yeah. doesn't. But it, I don't think he ever said he did. He just says it seems well, ironic that we'll, he does. We'll get here. I'll, 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 I'll get no. to it. So in, in the 90s, in the mid-90s, Burton Silverman actually reached out to Ian Anderson and wrote him this letter. It was like, look, you know, I understand that you'll have no obligation, but would you be willing to kind of join me in trying to get me some kind of royalty right from Chrysalis. Chrysalis. Mm-hmm. And if you read the article, he actually posts a letter in there. It's the letter looks bad. It Does looks it? bad on Ian Anderson because mm-hmm. he really came off as kind of a real asshole, even though I understand where he's coming from in the letter. Right. I think he really came off in a bad way. Mm, I'd have to read the letter. Yeah. And it's a, uh, and the other thing that's really interesting is there's so there's three of them. There's three paintings. Mm-hmm. There's a front cover, the middle cover, and the, the back and, cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, as I say, the front cover, the back cover, and the gatefold. Oh, the gatefold, right, right, right. Uh, so mysteriously, two of the three paintings disappeared. The gatefold painting was hanging in Ter- Terry Ellis's office until he left Chrysalis in the early was eighty three. Mm, no, he was still with Chrysalis in no. seven. I thought it was a, no. He's when he was still with. He's the one who did the the flute as a heavy metal instrument campaign, and that was in '89. Got you. Okay, so, so it was mid '90s, so maybe when it, whenever it was. Whenever he left, is when all these paintings mysteriously like disappeared. Right. And because that's the other thing is the Silverman family's like, look, 
If you're not gonna, if you if you're not gonna give us any kind of royalties, at least give us the paintings, right? Which so, I think would be fair. Well, so two more of, than fair because it's not like they're giving them any money. So all three of them disappeared <clears throat> for a while, uh-huh. and uh, let me see the so the Robert Silverman met with Terry Ellis a couple of years back to kind of sit down because he was in the process of laying out things so he was going to write for the article, mm. and. After the meeting is when Terry Ellis decided to go back through his his storage unit and found one of the paintings. One of the paintings. He found the gatefold painting because he because so Terry Ellis claims that the that his his storage unit was broken into years ago, and a bunch of stuff was stolen. It mm-hmm. must have been two of those paintings that were stolen. Uh, but he's actually so they, he still refuses to give the family back the the one gatefold. Well, Terry there. Ellis is an asshole even by Ian Anderson standards. Oh, really? Yes. Why is that? I mean, he just he always was. I mean, even he was an asshole to Ian Anderson. Oh, really? Yeah. the The story goes when he came in to listen to the um, finished product of uh, Under Wraps mm-hmm. in 1984. He sat there quietly through the whole thing, got up and said, "You guys need to produce a fucking another fucking Aqualung, or this is over." And he stormed. Really? Out. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that, that's that's actually interesting, but uh, yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah, Ian Anderson is definitely he spent the last couple of decades definitely downplaying the the significance of the album cover because right. I think as far as like '70s classic rock goes, if you want to call it, it is pretty rock, iconic. It is an iconic album album cover. You know, I put it up there definitely with you know uh, Led Zeppelin four, Dark Side, all those those great iconic album covers, things that you don't really get in today's kind of music. Right. Um, I know that uh, in in a, one interview, he said that uh, it it wasn't very attractive or well executed. He said that uh, mm-hmm. he never liked the Aqualong album cover. And actually, in a LA Weekly interview, he went as far as said that uh, that it was messy and unflattering. But I wonder how much how much of that is him kind of di- trying to distance himself from this Burton Silverman stuff that's been really carrying, kind of carrying on uh, for. You know, well, but it doesn't point. affect him in any way. I mean, um, aside from him maybe helping out, it wouldn't have. It, it might now because he does. But, but he the, does but, own but the funny the thing is, but the funny now. thing is, it hasn't stopped Jethro Tull from selling shirts the, and everything th- with yeah. everything, everything imaginable with the, that album cover on You'd it. You'd be surprised how much of their material, their merchandise, isn't Aqualung related, though. But they have a lot of Aqualung related yeah, material. A bit, but a, not a lot. A lot. You'd be, they they've you'd got have fucking to... coffee mugs and everything else with the damn album cover on it. So I mean, yeah, they do. Yeah, but it's lot. not the triangle from Dark Side of the Moon. No, because that's on fucking everything. That's literally on everything. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not downplaying that. I'm just saying, you know, it's uh, when you look at the Tull catalog. The overall, at least nowadays, the the overall symbol is the one legged flute silhouette. Yeah, that's that's really the tall sign. You know, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, it's it's that's the logo, the, the logo. Yeah, but uh, and I've I've always read there there's interviews dating back to the mid seventies where he criticizes oh, yeah, sure. that album I'm cover. Sure, I'm though. sure. I'm sure. So. I know. I mean, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna try and think for for or speak for Ian Anderson, but he never liked that. He never fucking liked the album mm-hmm. overall. He hated Aqualung. He hated the fact for years that he had to get up on stage and play that song all the time. He never liked that album. He warmed up to it in the mid '90s. 
mid to late nineties. Um, when the anniversary stuff started popping up, like the 25th anniversary of that album is about the time he started going, eh, okay. It's not as bad as I thought it was, but he hated that fucking album. I don't know why. It was it was a difficult album to make. Oh, I, I can I can definitely see that. the The band wasn't gelling at the time. He had just fired Glenn from the, as a bassist, which I think was a stupid he, move. But you know, you say that, and I and Glenn, I, Glenn was a Glenn, great bass. Glenn player. was a great bass. Bass. Player. But let me put it to you this way: Think of some of the bass lines that that Jeffrey. Came, did he not was, come he with was, he was definitely he good had, he had no training whatsoever oh, I know. and he jumped right in and was doing the bass lines for a rock band but um regardless of that i think some of the bass lines on Stormwatch are way infinitely better and than anything tall um glenn ever did but anyway he had just fired glenn he knew that at the end of this 71 tour he was losing clive because clive had put his notice in that he was leaving Overall, the album was a pain in the ass, and he just, nothing about it, he enjoyed nothing about it. So that's, and that's been in multiple interviews for decades. So, I I mean, I, like I said, I'm not going to speak for him, but I honestly, because it doesn't affect him necessarily, because he could share royalties, it doesn't hurt him that much. Well, it wouldn't affect Jethro Tull at all. Well, Chrysalis doesn't exist anymore, so it'd have to come from Warner Brothers. It's still, but Ian Anderson owns the majority of the rights to that stuff now. <clears throat> so here's part of the here's part of the 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 letter he wrote back to yeah. to Burton Silverman. So I do recall that we met at least once. Hold on, let me pull this closer so I can. I'm getting kind of old now. I probably need some glasses. Probably. Uh, <clears throat> I think on the stage of some London venue where we were rehearsing during which during which time you sketched or photographed me and the other group members for the Aqualung artwork. I'm sure you will recall that the Aqualung character on the front cover was clearly designed around my likeness rather than a totality, oh, sorry, a totally original character of your own invention. And I wonder to what extent you or anyone could legally hold copyright in an artistic representation of a real person, which is not true. You definitely can, but. Um, So I have, for example, only recently successfully prevented the continued sale of posters in Germany and elsewhere bearing my obvious likeness in flute playing context, which although from an original painting was clearly supposed to be me. However, I offer this only to support my view that this issue may, may well be complex. I see what you mean. It does kind of come off as harsh, but I don't think that's necessary. I, that's kind of legalese. Because he's not, he's not denying not. the guy has the rights, has, has some financial recompense coming back to him. He's just no, saying no, that, no. He's saying you don't because you can't own an art, an artistic likeness of somebody else. Well, if the guy could come up and prove to him that it wasn't him, though, if he still I, had the that album photograph. Because, the, the, I mean, anyone who looks at that album cover thinks it's Ian Anderson. So here is... Uh, if he the, still the, has the, the photo... The people at home can't see this, but right. this is a... Um, a watercolor painting he did during that when the, when they met in in London. Okay. And if I scroll, you said he his women his wife took a photograph. Yeah. Of a homeless person doing this, mm-hmm. which was what you see on the cover of the album. If well, they the, still had the photo of that same homeless person. Well, it wasn't a homeless person. It was him. It was Burton Silverman. Well, his, they still his had wife, that photo. I, yeah, I know that. But 
But I, I, you, I, you can't tell me that that doesn't look like Ian Anderson. It looks though. like a it looks like a guy with long hair and a beard in the early seventies. That could have been anyone. The face to me really? doesn't. The I face. Mean, are you being completely honest? I am. You, I, 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 you I never am. thought that that was Ian Anderson, even when you were younger. And I, I guess I never really thought about it. Okay, because I always assumed that was Ian Anderson. No, I don't. I don't see at least facial structure wise uh, very much a resemblance. But maybe that's me. Yeah, I think it's you because I think everyone <laughs> everyone has always seen that to be Ian Anderson. Whether or not it's true or not, that that that's you know it has to be proven. Yeah, and you know if he could so, prove it, if he could display that information, he, he can't. He, but that's but that's the thing. He said he took a picture. On. If but, he did, but, he has evidence. But it's still, there's still no legal recourse because so the prior to the copyright laws changing in '78, mm-hmm. all that was kind of seen as 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 work for hire. Work for hire. Yeah. And that changed in 78. So if the courts will always look back at those cases pre-78 mm. and they're going to side with the the company. Company, right. They're not going to side with the artist. Let me ask you this, because like, this has come up in other areas, specifically in like film, where, um, and it's kind of going on right now with uh, the Friday the 13th, because they did change the laws again. That said that after 35 years, the original author automatically gets the rights to their work back, yeah. even if they didn't own it. And Friday the 13th, it came up to that point, and Victor Miller um, said, okay, I want my rights back. I want the rights back. Yeah. He was a work for hire. And in this case, they, the courts did side with him. Um, but there's, and I, I'm, I'm, I don't know enough about that, but I can tell you that I don't care. I that was post-1978, though. That was post-1978. But what I'm saying is is there's been a lot of times where someone has written something as a work for hire and didn't even want to put their name on it. Mm-hmm. But then it was it ended up turning out to be popular and make money, and they're like, oh, well, I want some of that. Yeah. If Aqualung had not done anything, would he be bitching about it? No. He would have accepted his 1500 bucks and moved, moved on. on. Moved on. So, so that's the, the question I'm asking. I the other, is the, he only going after it because he knows it made money? The other shitty thing if is- If it hadn't, he would have made, it wouldn't have made any fucking difference. I don't remember exactly where it's at in the letter, but Ian Anderson also talks about in the letter that, uh, he, that the oh, he says something about, oh, you know, $1,500 in 1970 was actually- A, a lot of money. A, a pretty decent amount of money, and you should basically be happy with what you got. It's, well, it's well, I'd have to hear his exact words for that. Well, I'll let you read it, but it's because it's, it, it's a two-page letter. It's not really that short. But Ian Anderson's very long-winded. Yeah, he definitely is in this letter also, because mm-hmm. it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven paragraphs. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, so Burton's son sits down with Terry Ellis and kind of goes through this whole story and kind of gets Terry Ellis' side of it. And after the interview, he's like, hey, you know, would you be able to put me in touch with Ian Anderson? I'd love to be able to sit down and kind of talk to him about all this stuff too. And Terry's like, yeah, you know, we're still good friends. We still talk regularly. I'll, uh, I'll call him and let, and let him know. And, uh, so surprisingly enough, a couple of days later, he gets a phone call from, from Terry Ellis saying, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, Ian agreed to kind of sit down and talk to you. And there's like a back and forth for a while. Come on. Here we go. So there's a back and forth uh, for a, a short period of time with uh, Robert Silverman and Ian Anderson's people. 
And they kind of hash out this whole thing there. Because I guess there's like, when you do an interview with Ian Anderson, there's a list of things you're not allowed to talk to him about. And it's, uh, I forgot, let me see if I can see exactly what it says in here. Because I, I thought it's kind of, it's, uh, you're not allowed to ask him anything. You're not allowed to ask anything, uh, any of the stuff that, hate, that he hates to, to be asked about. I guess like if you talk to him about the longevity of the band, he, he hates that kind of shit. He doesn't want to talk. Well, he's given so many interviews about it anyway. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not trying to shit on that because I kind of understand. If you do thousands upon thousands of right. interviews, you probably get tired of talking the same shit. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so they kind of do this whole long process of what yes, yes, what he will talk about and what he won't talk about, and then like a day or two before they're supposed to meet, they call and cancel the interview. Of course, uh-huh. so. And, and so in, in the article, he's, he's, he's kind of going back and forth is like, well, is it that he cancel it because he just doesn't want to talk about this aspect of it? Cause he's afraid, I guess Terry Ellis even made the comment to, to Robert, to Robert Silverman that Ian Anderson was afraid that Robert was going to start asking him about this letter that Ian okay. Anderson wrote as his father. Yeah. But. I mean, that's, <clears throat> I don't know the man personally. I've watched hundreds upon hundreds of interviews with, mm-hmm. with him. I haven't seen that many. I've seen a lot of them, though. But. Um, if there's an interview out there that's been videotaped and hasn't been destroyed, I've seen it. Yeah. Um, I would say that he's like any other celebrity, but he doesn't mince words, and hes I've seen him take responsibility for shitty things yeah. he's done so and uh, the other thing i was gonna say is uh according to terry ellis I- uh, ian anderson was angered even at the idea that that robert was even bringing up the idea of uh, or even bringing up this whole painting right. issue so i guess he was pissed well, and i, I guess at the alt- at the end of the day if if your perception of it if his perception of it is that it's an, a, an artistic imp- impression of himself of him and that can be corroborated by at least the vast majority of the people who've seen the fucking album cover and know who Ian Anderson was back then. It's difficult to see beyond that. I'm not, again, I'm not, I can't speak for him. I don't know. It could just really be he doesn't want to pay the fucking money. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah. I don't know. Um, then say that. No, and he would if that was all it was. To be honest with you, he would. He, he's the type who would say that. I, I'm not giving you the money. It's my money. It's my record. It's your contract, it's, basically. Yeah. It, and the contract wasn't even made with Ian Anderson. It was no, made it wasn't. with Terry, Ar- it was, Tal- yeah. Terry Ellis. And that's kind of a questionable thing because Terry Ellis and Ian Anderson are in laws now, too. Oh, are they? Yeah. Uh, his Ian's son married Terry Ellis's daughter. Okay. So, yeah. So it's, uh, I don't know. I, don't, I, I, I just don't like I don't the- even know what. I don't know anything about all that. I've always seen that album cover as an artistic impression of Ian Anderson. Mm. I, I I don't see. I never really saw the the likeness. I guess mm. I do. I have, and I'm not the only one. I, well, obviously not, because Ian Anderson thinks it's him. Right. Uh, I just don't like the fact that it's. It does seem like Terry Ellis took advantage of a young, inexperienced. Right. Well, I think at the time he didn't. I think after the fact. You don't think so? No, no, because fifteen hundred dollars, their first album cost seventy dollars yes. to make. Fifteen hundred dollars for just the artwork so was this, a lot so of this, fucking money. This was, yeah, not when you really think about it. So look at this. One. No, it's Hold a on. lot of money for a commissioned work. 
Look, look at regardless this way. of what the so, album. So made. you're, let's say you're a you're a record producer, you're a record executive, mm-hmm. and you've have, at the time, a very well established band. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yes, they were a very well established band. They weren't headlining st- stadiums yet. No. No, but, but they were they would been they've been around for four years through through their first three albums. Their first three albums sold well enough that they were a well established band. So you take you're okay. So we're going to do an album cover. I can either pay fifteen hundred bucks and be done with this guy, or I can pay him theoretically a couple of million dollars, depending on what it you know what the percentage is for for commission moving forward uh, on future sales. Yeah, but they didn't know that album was going to sell. Aqualung could have been the last Jethro Tull album. It could have been. I think you can. I, I, I guess con- conventional I, wisdom is. I'm sure conventional wisdom is fifteen hundred boxes. You're going to be saving yourself some money. Okay, you're, you're getting on the cheap. You're going fair enough. You're going to take. Perhaps. you're going to take a young, inexperienced artist. You're going to give him fifteen hundred bucks. You're going to get the paintings, and then you're going to move. What forward. did it cost Led Zeppelin for Led Zeppelin for oh, the know. album cover? What did it cost Pink Floyd for their album cover? I don't know, but they, Pink Floyd's kind of different though because they use the same company for their all their. And Ian Anderson covers. does now. He's, he has yeah. for the last twenty five or so years. Um, Actually, I believe Aqualung was the last album cover he didn't have full say in it or creative yeah. control. You're yeah. right, um, because Ken, Thick as a Brick was a group effort anyway. But yeah, um, Ian Anderson's never had a problem sharing his royalty money either. By the way, if you've worked with him, you're getting a check every month. Guaranteed. Oh yeah, well you don't have any other recourse, right? So, but I mean, yeah, he does in some cases. There's been a lot of artists who've worked for him without a contract, and he still pays them. Yeah. He could get away with not paying them. Mm. So that's why I say it's post not a, post 1978. They became a very difficult thing to do without a contract. Correct. Mm. Okay, well, there's a lot of those cases from before. Okay, but anyway, um, again, I don't want to speak for him because. I know. He's a shrewd businessman as well as a good musician. He had to be. He wouldn't be where he's at if he wasn't. No, no, I'm sure not. Terry Ellis is strictly a businessman. He always has been. Yeah. And money's always been the bottom line for him. So if he saw an opportunity to get, you know, a cheap album cover out of it, he would have, for sure. That's what To me, it sounds like what he did. That That doesn't make it so that this artist owns the rights to that work because it was a work for hire according to even himself he Terry was Ellis. well he said i was commissioned to do an art album cover right i mean he wasn't commissioned to do a painting and that was it and then they used it as the album cover he was commissioned as to work on an album cover yeah that's a work for hire yes now, yes and no it i would is. say yes and no no it I, we're doing an album cover. Would you like to do the album cover for us? Yes. Okay, I'll do that. That's a work for hire. He was well, commissioned to do the album cover. There's got to be. But, but here's the thing, though. I, I would say that generally, especially when it comes to album covers, there's always something moving forward. But that's what I mean. Where where does that is that true of every other artist? I mean, the the people who did the Beatles album covers. Or or Led Zeppelin, I'm sure, or, or you know, well, whether Pink Floyd or whatever, Aerosmith's album covers. I mean, that would have been late. Well, that would be seventy four. Yeah, Toys in the Attic was what seventy five. Mm, somewhere around there, seventy four. Okay, that's a that's a art art work piece. Kansas, their leftover cheer album, or even Point of No Return, which 
slightly better I can album. pretty much guarantee that those are probably all, there's all royalties built in Well, there. but see, you have to, I'm just saying, if you, where, if this, if it's that important to this artist and his son, these are the things that you use as your evidence. Mm-hmm. He says he, that's not a representation of Ian, that's a picture that he made up based on a photograph he took in 1971. But, produce the, but, but, produce but, but the here, photograph. But this is the thing, though, is the photograph has really nothing to do with it. If it does, if he's claiming that it's not Ian Anderson. Because it does not change the contractual agreement, that there really was no contractual agreement. Then he has no legal recourse. That's it's a, what I'm it's saying. A, That's it, what I'm it's saying. It's a moo issue. It's a, it's <laughs> because a cow's opinion does not matter. Yes, Thank you, it's Joey. It's a moo issue. Thank you, Joey. Uh, um, it's moo. So, yeah, and that's and that's kind of why that was kind of the, the reason that he kind of went to Ian Anderson in the 90s. Right. It was like, hey, can you help me out here? Now, if Ian Anderson had made that deal with him, then that would be a different story. But he even says in his own letter, he has, I know you have no obligation to do anything on my behalf. So, I mean, yeah. what, what difference does it make? It's, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of, it just doesn't it's, it's, matter to it's me. A, it's an interesting story behind the, the artwork and all that. So that's, that's of all one is. album out of the 27 that he's made. I know. Or 25 that he's made. I just think it's really funny you get all defensive about it. I I wasn't defensive until just now when you started telling me that I was wrong. I'm not fucking wrong. It's a work for hire. That's when I got defensive. Well, see, and, I wasn't and, defensive and about anything up to that. And point. that's and that's where kind of it, it 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 falls into the gray area, mm-hmm. is because there was no contract, I, which again is so it's really kind of hard to say it was a work for hire. If one side is saying one thing and the other side, well, is one saying side something. is saying. That they hired him to make the album cover. Uh-huh. The other side is saying, I was hired to make the album cover. Where's the where's the confusion? They both are saying the same thing. Not really. What's he saying? He's saying that the that he was taken advantage of because they left is, out the because Yeah, he's talking about the money side of it. What 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 was what was it that Terry Ellis asked him to do? That I don't know. That I don't know. Because in what you were, in the article you read to me, you were reading to me, says specifically him by no, him, no, 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 no. He was asked what to I, make an What album I was cover. reading was what Anderson wrote to him. No, you were talking about when him and his wife flew to London and went and went and saw the band. Mm-hmm. What was he doing there? He was doing the album cover. Correct. So he was hired to do the album Correct. cover. Yes. That's a work for hire. Yes and no, because it depends on what it is moving forward. And Not that, in nineteen seventy one. As you pointed 19, out. Nineteen seventy. Seventy, you're right, because the album came out in April. Yeah. So it would have been It was nineteen seventy. Seventy. Not in 1970. And that's what his argument is. is He felt that it was an unfair contract. There was no contract. But there was no contract. And that's why he's lost for you know, right. 40 years. I, I mean, no. I feel bad for him, but I don't see any. But the funny thing is, the funny thing is, I will say this. If that same thing, had, if that same contract had been written in 1978, he would be having, he would have royalties. Fair enough, Guaranteed. but it did. It was in 1978. He was eight years too early, right? Yeah. And quite honestly, if Aqualung had come and gone and no one would have even known about it, he wouldn't have fucking cared. Well, no, because there would be no royalties from it, right? But it's my point about these people who don't even want their fucking name on shit, and then they oh, it's that's making a lot of money. I want that money. Yeah, it's it's just it's. And it's also, a money grab. And also, like I would, like I also said, I, I think it would be different. Also, a lot of it could probably be calmed down if Terry, if Terry, Terry else would just give him the fucking banning. And that's I wholly, wholeheartedly agree with that. Because that was the other thing is 
you know, he was he was angry that Terry Ellis had this uh, this painting mm. for uh, several years, and and he had been asking Terry about the uh, about the artwork, and Terry kept saying it was yeah I, I don't know where it is, right. and he had it the whole damn time. Right, and he knew Which he, totally and, sounds like Terry Ellis, and he actually. knew he had it the whole damn time, and, and that totally sounds like Terry Ellis. Because, like I said, it, it, it could probably all go away if he would just give, give him the fucking painting. Well, I mean, it's not like he's there's any threat of anything anyway. There, I don't think this guy has no. any legal recourse. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. So it doesn't. It really doesn't matter. He does, and you know what? Even and if I'll he, tell you even, what. Even if he did, Warner, if he did take it to court, because he he has, he he's tried to, but no one's willing to take on the case because Warner Brothers will just bleed him dry. Then I honestly think he could take Ian Anderson to court. He could not. Why not? Because the contract would not be because th- the contract wasn't with Ian Anderson. It wasn't with Warner Brothers either. It was with Chrysalis Records. But Chris, but they assume they they assume everything with Chrysalis when they buy Chrysalis. Even something like that. Yes. Because they're still commissioning it. Right. To this day. Well, and if he had an actual physical contract, there'd be hard it'd be hard for them to argue it. They, they would be. It would so be. he could still take him to court, but he doesn't no, have a it, physical oh, contract. It, it, come, yeah. In retrospect, yeah. For, first off, if you're an artist, get a contract. Get a contract. Don't do shit without a fucking contract. And no one these days would. No. So when I moved back from Tennessee, I moved into my sister-in-law's house. You wrote a contract. I, I wrote a fucking contract up. I'm not doing anything without a contract. Right. Yeah. I'm. Hey, fair enough. You know? No, I, I, I get it, but. Like I said, I don't know. I don't really that, understand. That's what, kind of my my issue with the we whole. We spent an awful is, lot of time on that. And it really has nothing to do with the music at it, all. It doesn't. It doesn't. But I just um, wanted to talk about you that. wanted. Was, you wanted to get a rise out of me is what you really wanted. To do. No, no, no. It just irritates me. I just don't like that when I I don't like it when artists like that get screwed by by. Fair cor- enough. Cor- but you know what? It happens all the time. Oh, sure. I guarantee it's happening right now as we speak. Right. So, and it's. But it's funny that. But again, it does funny have that they changed the laws eight years later because it was such. I'm sure there was right. obviously. Well, something and that's going the thing. I, I would like to point out. We. I'm going to try and find out. I don't know where to look for that, but I'd like to find out who did the artwork for Star- for Led Zeppelin Four, mm-hmm. and find out how well, much he go- got. You can Google it uh, and find out how much he got paid for that commission because fifteen hundred dollars in 1970 was a lot of money, especially if it was American dollars, and we're not talking British sterling here, right? Correct. It was fifteen hundred American dollars, I think, because that's huge. It, rate of inflation alone. I don't think artists get paid that much now. If you do the rate of inflation, oh, I'm sure they probably do. I don't know, especially since these days everything's people make their own fucking record covers on their own. I guess I don't know what the I don't know what the with inflation all that would right. end up being. But it'd be a lot because fifteen hundred dollars. You could buy a house for fifteen hundred dollars back then. Seriously. Oh yeah, I'm sure you could. I actually I know you could. Yeah. By the way, that's uh, it was interesting. I just figured I'd mm. talk about that. Yeah, you wanted to get more of a rise on me. I know you're trying to get me all screaming. No, no, no. It was just one of those things that I kind of stumbled across, and I was like, hmm, "That's an interesting thing," because mm. I'd never heard the story before. Right. That's all it was. Huh. Well, did you have more to talk about with Jethro Tull? No, just that and the. I was going to write more stuff, but I just really got busy doing installing washing machines and things like that. Oh, so yeah, I had, I had uh, real life stuff to take care of. Yeah, well, according to you, the other day you had a ton of notes on it. That's that's what you told me at work the other day. Because I had started that, and I was well, I had all the music, all the, all the other music stuff mm, also. Okay. Wait, mm. Mm. How many how many pages of notes did you have, Ian? Well, with this, I didn't really need any. 
I did learn something. I'll point. I will admit that, but because I only had three pages, so mm. I'm just saying. Yeah. Uh, have you had a chance to listen to the remasters of any of the other albums? Uh, I've listened to Stand Up. I've listened to Benefit. Um, I actually haven't listened to my Benefit yet. Uh, I'm pretty sure I listened to this was also. I've listened to most of the ones I have. Yeah. I listen to records, Ian, a uh, lot. I know. I'm just checking to see if I thought we were going to talk about these the records, the vinyl. We, 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 we did. We talked about three fucking albums, and then it was well, that. And then we were talking about, I was talking about, like, the pink versions of some of the older stuff, and. It was five minutes. You spent five minutes on that. So, who cares? <laughs> what are some other, well, okay, what are some other rarer stuff that uh, that's out uh, well, there? Well, forget about it now. The show's over. We've been talking for two hours almost. Oh, whatever. Two hours, my ass. It's been an hour and 27 minutes. It's still a long episode for Jethro Tull. Whatever. Well. We could have had this over with if we had talked even just about mu- just the music. That's what like is 20 what minutes ago. I know there are like uh, <clears throat> roots to branches and things like that that are, that are hard to find also. Well, okay. There there are roots to branches was the last Jethro Tull album to be released on vinyl at, at an re- original yeah. uh, time of, of release. After that, they only released, they only made one other Jethro Tull official album anyway. Um, and that was in 99. Yeah. Roots to branches, if you want to try and find it, is. About two hundred fifty dollars, anywhere from two hundred to two hundred fifty dollars. I've seen it lower, but I'm questioning the quality of the of the of the items. How much was it? What? I've seen them under two hundred, like one hundred eighty, one hundred seventy. Well, but... I've seen a lot that are under that are. Under. Oh no, I've, the ones I'm looking at are like two twenty. Is the... the one I was looking at was like one hundred forty five bucks. No, no, because it. Uh, well, for me personally, I'm going VG plus or near mint. The one, I, yeah, the one I, I want near the, mint. The one I was ideally. looking at, I believe, was VG plus. Yeah, I want near mint, um, and that's gonna it's gonna run me about two hundred bucks. But there's um, dot com was ninety nine. Mm-hmm. That was never never pressed on vinyl, uh, and then Ian Anderson probably never will be, but probably never will be. Then Ian Anderson solo albums, um, Secret Language of Birds, Rupees Dance. Well, that was just those two. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess the Jethro Tull Christmas album, which I guess was an official Tull release. I don't consider it an official Tull I could, release. I, I thought that was on vinyl. Was it not? No. Never released on vinyl. That came oh. out in 2003. Same year as Ruby's I thought, Dance. Okay. I, I, for some reason, I was thinking that they re-released it, though. I don't. They have re-released on CD with, with no, on stuff, vinyl, but I not on vinyl, okay. no. Um, and, I mean, it's a good album. It's... Mostly, um, tra- so it's a few traditional Christmas songs, yeah. like English traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, it's some older Jethro Tull stuff that had Chris that's related to Christmas, mm-hmm. and then uh, some two. Is it two? Yeah, two original songs that are Christmassy songs. Yeah, made for the record itself. Um. It's okay. I like it. I can listen to it once in a great, great while, but the fact that I have to listen to Christmas music literally for two months every year, <laughs> I can't even listen to that really anymore because, I mean, there's like um, Hark the Herald Angels saying he calls it Holy Herald. Mm-hmm. It's a, an instrumental version of that. Yeah. God rest you, merry gentlemen. I'm going to hear those on the radio 17,000 <laughs> 17, times between now, November, and the end of December. Hell yeah. So why why would I sit down in my living room and force that on myself then? 
<coughs> so I don't know. Even if they released it, I would get it on vinyl if they released it on vinyl. But I'd probably never. I'd only listen to it one time just to listen to it and be done with it. But I'm really curious because you say they may never release those on vinyl. Those would be it, those would be perfect record store day exclusives. Oh, they would be because they're they're unique. People are going to grab them. You don't need to make a lot of them. Even if <laughs> even if you did like twenty a uh, you know twenty five hundred or three thousand yeah or even run. shit even less fifteen hundred fifteen hundred run yeah. You know, well, I mean, there's probably not much of a difference between fifteen hundred and twenty five hundred. Yeah, maybe well, for a thousand. cost wise. Well, obviously, cost dip, wise, yeah, dip shit. I'm right. talking about cost wise. Yeah, but generally, the more you, pro, or the more you make of something, the, the cheaper it the becomes. cheaper it becomes per unit. Right. But you know, I don't know. I I think they those they would be good record store day exclusives. The problem is, is that. The one problem is Ian Anderson is a tech snob when it yeah. comes to music, and vinyl is a step backwards. Mm-hmm. He doesn't he doesn't understand it. He's willing to re- release stuff on vinyl if people are going to buy it, but he doesn't care about it. Mm-hmm. Now I think that's been made very clear. Yeah, he's not vinyl doesn't mean anything to him. No, to him, like I said, Tim, that's a step backwards because he works strictly digital. You know, Even though he's got to be making a pretty decent coin off of the, off these um, re-releases that they're doing. Well, of course, but they're always re-releasing something. Jethro Tull, Warner Brothers is always pumping out some greatest hits of some yeah. kind for them. <laughs> you know, I don't know how much they can really they do. I mean, you and them fucking uh, your your halls. It's, co- are, it's a cough drop. You're killing me. Well, you're I, killing me, Smalls. What do you want? But anyway, <laughs> um. Warner Brothers is always pumping something out, yeah. whether it's you know cheap this and you know the the ultimate Jethro Tull collection's got ten songs on it. Does it really? Yeah, I mean that that comes out all the fucking time. So, and granted, he's getting money from that too, but he doesn't. It's not that big yeah, of a deal. He doesn't give a shit. The the vinyl stuff because it's the Steve Wilson stuff. He's a little bit more involved. He is. He's very. He's hands on with. He's it. very hands on with it. So, although hands on for him usually means just doing it himself. Not, been, not with this. No, he's he he knows where Steve Wilson's coming from and what he, what he's doing. What he's doing. Yeah, so. they, from what I understand, they have very regular conversations. Yeah, when he's and a very good working relationship because he even Steve Wilson even mixed um, Ian Anderson's solo album from 2012. Oh, did he? Yeah, at you know, in the spot he mixed it as he was recording it. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's and I wish he would have re- mixed next album because it's a good album it's got a lot of good songs but you can tell it's different yeah just in the you want you get an ear for for how steve wilson works with yes ian anderson's songwriting yeah you know what's missing yeah you can see it you'd hear i mean if it would just been ian anderson who mixed it i probably would have not even noticed Mm -hmm. but it was some other guy who mixed it and it's like yeah i get it i get it's a different but yeah and you're gonna have those those variations right so I don't know. I mean, that's I could talk all day really about it, but it's just you know, I think those albums would be good record store day exclusives. You can even do it just one year, do yeah. three, you know, those, those it, five of them or there's three albums. Yeah, well, I don't there's... I don't foresee him if he's if Roots and Branches is going to be released, it's going to be part of a anniversary. Package. Gotcha. Okay. It's not going to be a record store day thing because I think for the vast majority of Tall fans, 
Roots to Branches is is a, a high point in the 80s and 90s. Oh, absolutely. Actually, if you look online and, and look at a lot of the... Because there's a couple of different articles I came across where it's like they rank all the Jeff yeah. albums. Roots to Branches is generally in the top half. Usually, yeah. And I would put it in the top half, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, I would put it above... Strangely enough, Under Wraps is normally the lowest ranked Jethro Tull album. Strangely, yeah. People can't get past that. It's it's so weird. Any other artist that was that was coming up in the eighty in the seventies, these you know, even the progressive stuff, did the exact same thing. Genesis, yes. Um, all, I'm saying like Palmer. All these old prog bands came up and they they were doing the same thing, this electronic synth kind of rock. Because that's what was popular. Pink Floyd didn't. I just want to say. They made one fucking album between <laughs> 1980 and 1987. They made two. They made, they made one. The final the cut. The final cut and then uh, Momentary Laughs of Reason. That was 87. Okay. All those bands went back to playing regular instruments by 87. By then, okay. Whatever. Even Jethro Tull. <laughs> so 87 doesn't count. 80 doesn't count. Or 83. You know. And let's face it. Pink Floyd has a lot of synthesizers anyway. They always have. They always have. So, you know, it wouldn't have been noticed. And how well did Final Cut do? Um, It it was okay. Yeah, it didn't chart very well. Um, It it did chart. Did it? Because all the shit. Well, Under Wraps charted, too. (laughs) Out of the top 200, it was was like number 140 or something like that. Yeah. But anyway, but all those other artists were doing that, and everyone's just on Under Wraps. I think it's a great fucking album. I really do. I don't mind the electronic stuff. Yes, it's a little overpowering, and I think if there had been a bit more balance, because if, if you take a song like European Legacy, which is the third track on the album, mm-hmm. it's got the electronic drums, but it's also got acoustic guitar and flute, and there's a balance in that song mm-hmm. that isn't present in a lot of the other songs. Um, but you take that song alone, and you kind of can see the what the album could have been. Yeah. If they hadn't been so reliant on the electronic stuff, that's all. I, I just think it's a, I think it's a good album, and I, I I take it for what it is. And if Ian Anderson was younger, I would I would, and he's even said that he wishes he could go back and re-record that with with regular instruments. Yeah, because well, there I, I are think, a I, lot of good fucking songs. I think on that would be, I think I would have a higher respect for the album if, if right. he did. I mean, I, don't get me wrong; everyone's playing something. Ian Anderson's playing his flute. He's playing the, elect- the acoustic guitar. Yeah. Martin is playing electric guitar. Um, Dave Pegg is playing bass. Really, the only thing that's overly synthesized is the keyboards and the drums. But I mean, there's a band effort. All right, so the final cut uh-huh. peaked at number six in the U.S. Okay. Under wraps, 76. So just- oh, that was better than I thought. I thought it was in the hundreds. No. So. Christopher Nave actually peaked at 32. Yeah. Broadsword was 19. In the U.S.? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I thought it was- so Under Wraps was their lowest charting album until Catfish Rising. Yeah. At 88. The Rooster Branches was one. And see, Catfish Rising, I would put above- I would, too. Broadsword? <laughs> yeah. I, for sure? I, actually, I think from after Stormwatch, I would put- Catfish rising above all the things that came before it, between Stormwatch and, and then. I've I've earned a slightly stronger appreciation for A over the years. Um, there's a lot of interesting prog stuff going on there that's very subtle. 
Yeah. Uh, that, peaked, that peaked at number 30, by the way. Yeah. Um, but I would agree. I think, I think musically speaking, Catfish Rising is a superior album to the vast majority of what came before it. Yeah. Of, from seven, you know, up to 79, because it is not superior to songs from the, or Stormwatch. No, no, no. And I would not say, and that's why I said after, after Stormwatch, I would say post Stormwatch, I would put Roots and Branches one and then Catfish, Catfish Rising two. two. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair, I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. I do know some Jethro Tull fans who do not like Roots to Branches that much. Really? Because it's really funny because it's very few of that. I know. Well, around. specifically my dad. He, oh, really? he likes it. He just, he doesn't, he just it says it doesn't catch him that well. Yeah. One of his favorite tall songs is on it, though. Yeah. It's Wounded Old and Treacherous. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I'm definitely a fan of their 70s stuff, their yeah. 60s and 70s. I just think that everything was clicking right as far as the balance between being an older band, being musically experimental, and kind of pushing their own boundaries. 95 with Roots to Branches, they were just, that was their peak. Yeah. After that, they just went to being an older band. Yeah. You know, at that point, they were still kind of like, let's push forward, let's do something different. After that, it's like, eh, we're just just we're tall. You know, yeah. we're going and I, I shouldn't say that entirely because I think Ian Anderson, some of Ian Anderson's solo stuff. Um, so Secret Language of Birds, I put it almost as on the same level as Roots to Branches. Yeah. Because it's it, it's a completely different animal, but it's also very experimental for him. Yeah. And Thick as a Brick 2 is experimental for someone in their 60s exploring the dynamics of something they created 40 years before. It's it's different. Yeah. Um, it's I've, not I've, as good as Roots to Branches or Secret Language of Birds, yeah. but considering it's an album, a conception, conceptually sequel album that's 40 years in the making, I'd say it's it's pretty good. It's it's right up there. Okay. You know, um, so because I guess it, to some degree you have to kind of take the Tull catalog, um, 68 to 79 and then 82 present day. Yeah. I mean, that, you almost definitely. have to. It's, or at the very least, 80 to 95 and then so, know, 99 so, on. Sound-wise, it's it's almost like two different bands. It is, because it is two different bands. Well, it's a lot of different bands. but Well, but it's very <laughs> different, because up to 1979, you had essentially the same, for the vast majority of the same people playing yeah. from since 1971. Yeah. With only the basses being the difference. Mm-hmm. So... When that changed, the whole dynamic of the band changed. Absolutely, because you lost your your keyboardists, plural, your drummer, and well, they kept Dave Pegg, but he was new to the band technically anyway, because yeah. he didn't really come in until the tour of Stormwatch. So, yeah. Um, but they had lost their bassist too. Um, Oops. John Glasscock had died, so. So though I mean the whole dynamic of the band changed oh, yeah. in 1980 when you, and moving when you, forward. When you lose that much of your band, it's going to right, and I think it showed. It did well. It does in the sense, but I understand why. Now, this is another area where Terry Ellis is kind of the dick. Ian Anderson went in not intending to lose those band members. No. He just wanted to play with different people. Yeah. So he went in making A as a solo album. That's why it's called A for Anderson. Yeah. The record company strong-armed him into making it a, a Jethro Tull album. Mm-hmm. And he regrets it to this day. And that's another area where he says, I, you know, I fucked up. I made a mistake doing that. But because it, it alienated those other guys. Because mm-hmm. they were like, okay, we're going to come back in two years. But now they're doing another Jethro Tull album without us. Yeah. 
So it alienated those guys, and understandably, they were pissed off about it. But he didn't. He did not intend that to be a Jethro Tull album. No. But I for did, what I, it's worth, I did know that. For what it's worth, there's there's some good shit going on on that album too. A lot of good shit. I would still I still consider it semi a part of that last era of Tull. <laughs> because you have the second best drummer that's ever been in the band, in my opinion. Yeah. And I who was, know who, who was, I don't remember who the drummer was on the album. Uh, Mark Cranny. Okay. Um Second best drummer. <laughs> And you have Ian Anderson exploring new songwriting techniques, doing stre- stretching himself, not necessarily in what was popular, but doing things different than he had done before. And in uh, several songs, I think it shows that there's a lot more going on in him. Black Sunday, Filingdale Flyer, and Uniform. Those three songs by themselves, and maybe Protect and Survive, but those three songs, he couldn't have written those with the other band. Yeah. I don't. I don't think. <clears throat> Maybe he could have. I don't know. Maybe they would have been better. I, I know one thing is I'm, I've never been a fan of Dave Pegg's bass Basing, playing. Bass playing. There's you got to catch him right. His recorded bass playing. Yeah, it's, it's always it's flat. It's flat. His some of his live stuff because there's a lot of live stuff I've heard of over the years, like a lot of bootleg stuff where he's done like instrumentals and solos and stuff, and it's really good. Yeah. But you're right. His his recorded efforts eh, a little flat. I would totally agree. And I think it's it's kind of what a lot of their '80s stuff really lacked was some of that depth that it had in the '70s. Well, I they think, had really good bass players in the '70s. They did. That's they had really the, good. Well, bass those bass players were the best they've ever had. Yeah, those three. Because um, Jeffrey Hammond wasn't even a bass player, and look at what he accomplished yeah. just by them saying, "Play this." Yes, play this. You know, uh, and then get on stage and be, you know, animated and entertaining at the same time. Yes. Uh, and then Glenn Cornick, who is, you know, who was a fantastic bass player. He was. And John Glasscock, who was, I think John was slightly better than Glenn, but. Technically speaking, yes. Yeah, because he had, a, he had a, better, a more technical grasp of yes. the bass. Yeah, yeah. I still liked, I, I liked the way Glenn played. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a uh, class on, on those a first those first couple of albums, absolutely. Yeah, jazz. They had that, that blues, kept that you know blues sound. On yeah. there. I'd say more blues than jazz, but right. Yeah, well, yes, because it was a blues band, but yes. there was a lot of jazz elements to the way he played too, yeah. though. Um, some I wouldn't say improvisational, but I don't know. Improvisational is a good word for it. Um, I gotcha. So, I don't know. I, like I said, I can talk all day. We, anytime you want to wrap this up, I, I can keep going. I can, I can well, break down. I can literally break down everything if you want. Well, we're pushing on almost two hours, so I guess we can probably call it a call it a day. Call, call an episode there. Um, yeah. Oh shit! Yeah, I, mean, I would say anyone who's out there who has not listened to Jethro Tull, give him a listen. Um, and if you if you're unsure. If you go on YouTube, there's a lot of uh, YouTube channels that do like reaction videos to music. And <laughs> do stuff. they have them on there? There's, for... there's several. And really? Yeah, you'd be surprised how um, they'll pick up on these these people. I mean, I, that's what they do. They they react and they pick up on the stuff. But they pick up on stuff that, for being their first time listening to it, I I think they give it a fair shake. Yeah, I've never heard anyone say anything Is bad. It, but I, are these like older people listening to it or? Um, there's. Two guys for sure. They're um, one's his um, 
Is it Soul Train Brother? But Soul Train Bro. Uh, he's an older black guy. Yeah. Uh, he's done a couple Jethro Tull reaction videos. Another guy, um, I can't remember his name now. He was the very first one I found. He did the entire album, Thick as a Brick, and he did the entire Aqualine album. But really? I can't and, find... And he recorded him... He just mm-hmm. literally see him in, on the camera, listening to it through the headphones, and it's playing through the video, huh. and he's reacting to it as it goes. Some, um, some of my favorite ones are the kids that, uh, you know, kids reacting to it. I them. watched one. This one kid, he was... Uh, I mean, I say he's a kid. He's probably near 20. But he did um, a reaction video to the Madison Square Garden live Thick as a Brick, so yeah. the, the truncated 13-minute mm-hmm. version, but the visual performance. And he was says he was blown away, but if you watch him reacting, you almost want to take his pulse because you couldn't tell if he's alive. Because <laughs> he just, he talked like this and wow. Yeah, that's... I mean, I was like, are you, oh my God, are you are you okay? Are you having a stroke? Yeah. Uh, but uh, God, I, I wish I could remember the name of that one guy who did the two albums. I'll I'll, I'll try to look. I him can't up. find the thick as a brick video anymore, but the Aqualung video is still on there. Yeah, there's there's one that I found there. I, it was hilarious. It was it was uh, kids, uh-huh. and they were like early to mid teens. Okay, reacting to Blink One Eighty Two. Oh, I think I saw. I saw. Songs. I didn't watch the video, but I saw it on someone's. And then there's feed. another one that Blink One Eighty Two reacting to, to the these kids. kids reacting to them. It was fucking hilarious. Yeah. There's a. I don't know if it was um, what the channel was, but they were doing that with like little kids, like say eight, nine, ten year olds. Yeah. And like playing Metallica and stuff for them. And oh, I think I did Iron see Maiden that one. Yeah. And Metallica and all that. And. You could always tell the the girls always hated it, no yes. matter what it was. Metallica, I mean, maybe I think there's one girl who liked one of them. Yeah, but the boys were always just like, yeah. It it just shows that there's a at the least difference. when they're young, there's a difference in musical taste between men and women. I would say that kind of carries on through life. But. A lot of times, yeah, a lot of times. There's a lot of there's a lot of hard rock heavy metal chicks out there still. There is absolutely. not many, but not um, as many as maybe there used to be. But there, there. I had to explain to my wife who Lita Ford was. But well, she was never huge. I mean, she wasn't she, like dominating. She was big enough. Big enough. Yeah, she was big enough that you should know who she is. Right. Um. Well, at the very least, if you know who Ozzy is, she did that that duet song with him. It was on her album. It was on her album. Yes, it was. So that's a good song. Um, was it close? Close, close my, my eyes, eyes forever. forever. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Good song. It was a good song. Yeah, for eighties music, right? <laughs> well, which, Lita Ford. Which the older I get, the less I like. She saw the Runaways, right? Um, I think so. Okay, well, maybe not. All right, I don't know because yeah, because Lita Ford was in the Runaways, right. but um, I don't know. I, the, we, she brought it up earlier. That's why I was wondering. <laughs> I don't think she's seen the whole thing though. Maybe oh, okay. she's seen parts of it, but. Right. Uh, because I, I thought Runaways was good. I don't want to go on about that. No. Um, but anyway, that's uh, that's kind of all I have, man. I, yeah. yeah. I guess we can wrap it up. Yeah, that was a, that was a long musical. Maybe episode. I'll just do a whole channel dedicated. To, I'll just it'll only be twenty five episodes. And I'll just do every album by itself. Break it down. There you go. Yeah. It'll only take me seven years or eight years to do it. Probably longer than that because Ian's been working on his own podcast for, uh, well, almost ten months now. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> good things, good quality things don't just happen. 
takes time. Yes. These takes it takes these things a while to ferment. I guess. I guess. This he, is this said, is going to be like a fine wine when it comes he out. He said six of them recorded, but you know, it's They've like, got to be edited just right, you know. Edited just right properly cuz it's not like it's not like our show. I mean, our show's good. But this is going to be like this is going to have like sound clips and stuff in it. We're pushing I, our boundaries. I, I, I could definitely put sound clips. You in. could. There's be, nothing I'm nothing. doing that you can't do. No. But you know, I'm trying to. I'm just trying to do something different. Because anything we're, you can do, I can do better. But you know, uh, that's not true at all. <laughs> that's not true. That's true. There's some you, things you can do better, and there's some things I can do better. You can definitely be a jackass better. No. Oh no. I, no. You definitely. You definitely write notes better. No, I don't. <laughs> no, because I'm going to be honest, I don't. But I definitely can't be more of a jackass than you. Whatever. You are the. You can be the biggest asshole I've ever met. I could be. Yeah, I can't be. Even That's when like, I'm at my worst, I'm nowhere near your lowest. Yeah, I do kind of wear like a badge of honor sometimes. You should, because sometimes it's justified. Yeah. Not when you do it to me, but you know. Anyway. Anyway, so uh, any yeah, any questions or comments, you email us at contact at lifeofjoepodcast.com. Don't hate us for the longness of this episode, I guess. Uh, well, it would have been shorter, but Ian had, he, or Nick had to bring in fucking legal shit. Well, because I found it interesting. I, I did, too. I just don't think we, don't know if we need to talk about it for 45 minutes. I don't think we talked about it for 45 minutes. I think we probably did. No, it was probably a half an hour. Felt like 45 minutes. Well, whatever. Anyway. Uh, so yeah, check us out online. Leave us a uh, five star review on uh, iTunes, and uh, that's about it. I, I thought Ian was gonna do his six stars. Oh, I wasn't listening to you. Oh I didn't God. know where you left off. Fucking dumbass! You see what I fucking have to deal with? <laughs> I literally, I, I thought, like, I thought you were looking day, at me. I die more every day. You don't see me every day. My thing's vibrating here. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> well, my it sounds the, like a personal problem. The springs on my mic stand, yeah, I dumbass. I know what you meant. Uh, I was pounding the table too hard. Yeah, I was pounding too hard. <laughs> uh, at least I didn't call you they chair. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely uh, a topic for another show. <laughs> a topic for another show. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time, talk to y'all later. Peace. Let me tell you about it. This shit right here, man, I'm about about it. Only real niggas reside around me. Yo, lady, drop a card around me. Dip like I know you can, bitch. Show me the rust like we in the rain. Got you some cobras, you wanna hang? Shoulder to shoulder, the niggas basic. You know I won't lie. You know that I ain't for the fuck shit. You niggas alright, but I'm way better and she love it. Know that y'all sick as fuck. Here go this tissue, bro. We taking the dub, hoping you get you some. This shit like a pick me up. She taking my drugs. Know they see the sign. That's some dollar signs. Know they sick as fuck. Now they sick as fuck. Tell them get well soon. Tell them get well soon. Now you sick as fuck. Get well soon. Oh shit. Watch out, you the god, Billy. Oh shit.